Welcome to the Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United. And I'm Joel Whipperforth, Director of Digital Transformation at Winfield United. So Joel, we've got another yield unsealed episode of this podcast. And it is titled Weed Management. So for those of you that are new to the show and haven't listened, the Yield Unsealed is when Joel and I actually pull questions out of an unopened sealed envelope. And these questions are true and false. Some of them have been multiple choice in the past. And we try quizzing each other on the fly. So what I would add is they tried to talk us into like, hey, do you guys want to review the questions before we put them in the envelope just to see if they're legit? And we just said, no, like, no, no, we don't want to see them. We're just going to throw them over our shoulder if we don't like them. <laughs> I'll read them off and you can reject them. But okay. I always find that uh, you do best on the hot seat, John. It doesn't allow you to formulate any any soft answers. And then I ramble some. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready, All man. All right, let me Rock get these roll. questions out Weed of the management. End. Let's hit it. So let's kick off with adjuvants can help get more herbicide active ingredient deeper into the crop's canopy, resulting in better weed control. True or false? I'm going to say true because I guess I know the data behind it, but false. Depends on the adjuvant. Hmm. You got to have the technology to do that. And you have to have the research to back it up. So where I come from, we have a building that we call the Winfield United Innovation Center. And uh, that's where we do a lot of our research. And some of the things that we've been working on, and particularly corn sorb technology. And uh, corn sorb technology is the combination of high fructose corn sugar APGs, alkylpolyglucosides, put together in a package that create more humectancy or slow the droplet dry time down on that leaf as you spray it, which then helps uptake. Okay, so this is not only for active ingredients, Joel, this is for micronutrients as well. So know how I just took a 30-second answer and turned it from a weed management topic into a plant <laughs> nutrition topic. Okay, so, so we have, uh, I should say, Winfield United has the data to support that corn sorb technology. And what we see from that, in a lot of cases, if we radioactively label glyphosate and put it on the leaf, and then we grind up the leaf with and without corn sorb technology, the difference is we get about twice as much radioactivity or twice as much glyphosate into the leaf with the corn sorb than if we just have AMS alone, okay? So that's an interesting way to start to look at what adjuvants are doing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the question is kind of go two different ways on here is one of them is depth of penetration into the plant, which you talked a lot about adjuvants, alkypoly, uh, the APG thing. I, I don't know that I can say it. Alkypolyglucosides. Yeah, give me a couple of those. Uh, just two? Yeah, at least two. Uh, you know, that it's deeper penetration. One of the things that you talked about in the past is, uh, you know, some studies around, uh, you know, what are some of the ways that they look at how they quantify leaf penetration beyond radio-labeled glyphosate? You know, I, and I've heard you talk about confocal microscopy. Yep. So 
Interesting. I, I feel like you're leading me into wanting to say something. Well, I know there's like three things, but I can't remember them all. So I just kind of th- throw it up there for yeah, you. So aside from the, in this, these radioactivity studies that I mentioned are a little bit older. So they're dated because they were put together with the patent of corn sorb. But some of the more recent stuff that we've been looking at is, again, a newer technology, but this is using confocal microscopy and cross sections of the leaf. So we'll actually take specific leaves, whether it be lamb's quarter, water hemp leaves, so weed leaves, or in some other cases, maybe just a corn or a soybean leaf. And we'll put the active ingredient, whatever it might be, with a fluorescent dye in it to watch the movement of that fluorescent dye through that leaf cuticle. We'll then take that same fluorescent dye with active ingredient and put in an adjuvant system that we're testing. And it, and it could be a new adjuvant system that's in development. It could be a current product or it could be a competitor product. And look at the differences in that fluorescent dye with that in combination with confocal microscopy allow you to zoom in and see that how that dye moves down through that cuticle of that weed leaf or that crop leaf. And then we get deeper penetration of that active ingredient. So that's one way that we can visualize and have a good picture that tells the story of what those adjuvants are actually doing. You know, I think as you talk about that, I go, wow, that's a great quantitative analysis to be able to tell something of uh, adjuvant penetration, the speed of the penetration, the volume of penetration. All those studies were designed around that. But I thought back to, well, you know, a lot of times the leading competitor of the benchmark that competitors would use, and we also use this, but we use this in addition to our quantitative research, is just an observation study. Spray the herbicide and see if more weeds die in one than the other. But that relies on somebody to go out and eyeball and and rate each of these, and it's heavily dependent on conditions. And what you have a difficult time doing is when you're sorting through, you know, two or three hundred different adjuvants, geez, the top hundred kind of all look the same, especially if the environmental conditions are, you know, pretty average. So I think this is one of the places that uh, our innovation center is able to cull or clean out a whole bunch of products that just don't perform as well. It also means that we didn't, you know, in that top 100 products that all kill weeds just a little better than the bottom 100, it allows us to not pick the 75th best one to actually get into a quantitative analysis to picking the top tier adjuvant. So combining confocal microscopy with a greenhouse study and vetting the 300 options so that really you're only taking 10 or 20 of those options to the field is a lot more uh, valuable and a better use of research space um, than just taking all 300 and then getting confused on what some of the options are in the first place. All right. Adjuvant question right off the bat. There goes 15 minutes. All right, John, ask me one. I get one now. Sweet. I might have to ask the question back to you, by the way. Not that's not that in the rules. That's not one of the written down items there. You can answer this one, Joel. Okay. Some weeds can grow over an inch per day, making timely herbicide applications critical for effective control. True or false? Yeah, that's definitely true. I think the bigger challenge in that inch per day deals with the herbicide class that you're selecting from and whether it's a systemic or a contact-based herbicide. If it's a systemic, look, you know, it's going to do fine, you know, or it's going to be okay or less severe. I'm trying to choose my words carefully, you know, that it's going to be less important than if it was a contact. Because when you're dealing with a contact herbicide, most of the times those need to go after the growing points. And, you know, so like a water hemp that starts out as 
one to two inches and has, you know, six to 12 growing points, when it gets to three to four inches and it has 144 growing points, Mm -hmm. if it was in a contact herbicide, you need to kill 100% of the growing points to be able to be effective versus in a systemic one, you still have to be able to take down the plant and you know work in that pathway, but you don't have to approach a statistical probability of the herbicide touching each one of those growing points and being able to be in contact with there to shut the plant down. Yep. So size matters, but for different reasons, depending upon the herbicide. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I can agree with that. Okay. That was a fun one. Yeah. Uh, so, hey, wood weeds would grow more than an inch a day. Just for fun. Uh, water hemp is one. Yep. Uh, Palmer amaranth, another. Yep. Uh, let's see. Lamb's quarter. Yep. I'd say lamb's quarter would be close. Oh, what about giant, giant ragweed? Yeah. Giant, Probably. I think, I think giant ragweed grows all year round. <laughs> <laughs> Near as I can tell. I've never not seen giant ragweed growing somewhere. Yep. Oh. Absolutely. Did you ever watch that one? There's a video on the internet that a researcher put out with a special microphone that you could actually hear the crop grow, right? Have you heard that? You could hear the crop grow. That's how, and it was just a bunch of crackling. Crop was growing. I think you sent it to me while I was trying to watch Game of Thrones. Oh, and then you just disregarded what the Zucuanti's texting, all these random things. No, but so it's interesting because what we see coming out of the Innovation Center is a lot of these time-lapse videos of we'll take a, and we've gone to more so using indicator species like okra or cowpeas or different uh, species of weeds, false weeds, so to say, that we can grow consistently in a greenhouse versus, hey, if you try to germinate a bunch of water hemp, some come up, some don't. They all come at different sizes, right? And you don't really have a good consistent weed base. Well, by taking this indicator species, we can get a good consistent crop to spray and evaluate those herbicides that way. And because of those time-lapse videos, you can see a lot of the responses that we have in growth from day to day because you can see it get dark and you can see the way the leaves respond to the sunlight and, the, and that reaction. And as soon as it gets that dose of herbicide on it, you can see that totally change. So going back to our previous question and how this ties into the last one is, I mean, the adjuvants change that, but that weed growth is exponential to growing points, especially if you're talking about contact herbicides. Yeah, it's just a numbers game at that point. Yep. You, you become more and more statistically incapable of achieving weed suppression, mm-hmm. so which actually kind of kicks into our, our next question, John. So cutting herbicide rates in an effort to save dollars can predispose weed populations to herbicide resistance, true or false? Absolutely true. I guess there would be no argument in my mind on that for multiple different reasons. Uh, Number one is there's a real reason, Joel, why there is a labeled rate and that you should follow the labeled rate. Why is, what's that real reason? Or I assume that somebody's done some research there to uh, to see what, what percentage of weeds die when you apply that. LD50, right? I mean, what's the lethal dose that you need to kill? And uh, so the lethal dose is one thing, but I think when we talk in terms of residual, it's about the length of residual too. That's another thing. So the pre-deposition, as stated in the question, was... Well, if we have uh, less residual and we're less timely of an application, are we spraying weeds that are are overcome the label height restrictions and now we're getting less of a lethal dose because our weeds are too tall? So I think there's two factors there of cutting rates is can the weeds grow through it or do we mistime some other applications because of it? You know, I, I think as you, you switch that over to pre-emerge herbicides, so I'm going to add my own true-false in here. So 
if you use half the rate of pre-emerge, do you just get half the days for weed suppression? So I don't, I'm not sure that it absolutely works like that, because remember... Uh, or do you get half the weed suppression for the same amount of days, <laughs> which, which is essentially none? Yeah, so, so I mean... I think that's a function of you need to have a certain amount of active to overcome the soil factors. So most of these pre-emergents are rated, and if you do read the label, most of them are rated for what's your organic matter, what's your cation exchange capacity, what's that soil type, is it you know coarse, is it uh, fine? All those things will change the rate. And you start cutting the rate or half rating them, it's a straight line, it's not a curve, right? So, or, excuse me. It's not a straight line. It yeah. is a curve. So you can't yeah. really follow where you're going there. It might be exponential and it might actually fit what you said is you might just have less residual. Yeah, there's a tipping point in there. Almost like uh, I always think of uh, making country time lemonade. There's a point that it just tastes like water, right? And well, and then there's a point that it tastes like syrup. Yeah. <laughs> which I'd rather have it like water, Joel. Yeah. But not in a herbicide. You want it to be like syrup. Okay. You ready for another question? That was a terrible analogy. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to ask me another one to redeem myself here? Or do I got to okay big guns? Uh, oh, this is a good one. I think some people have gone to court for this one recently. Uh, Dicamba and 2,4-D are both group 4 herbicides. Therefore, they can be used interchangeably for in-crop applications. Can of worms, go. Well, because it says in-crop applications, I mean, you could spray them on corn. It'd be just fine. You can can use them both in corn. I feel like you're, you've stepped around the answer. What about in soybeans? <laughs> so the answer is absolutely. Soybeans, you have to, I mean, you cannot spray 240 on dicamba tolerant soybeans as you cannot spray dicamba on 240 tolerant soybeans. You will kill them. False. Okay. Or. And you have to spray specific types of dicamba if the, if for, so like in a case of like E3 or extend, those GMO crops require specific labeled versions of those active ingredients. Yep. So you have to spray specific types of dicamba and specific types of 2,4-D to follow the best label or to follow the label, Yeah. what the label says. And those labels, uh, those actually have living labels, which is, you know, we've talked about in prior episodes, those living labels uh, are constantly updating the, uh, the list of additives that are allowed into the tank with them. Yes, so living label, that means you have to have internet connectivity or you got to check it out before you leave. But yeah, it's on the internet and those labels do change. So I think it's important, you know, I think the label reads in some cases seven days prior to application, but I think it's important the day of, let's make sure that we got the right things in the tank and that they're still on label. And don't just depend on, hey, I did it last year and that was okay. Make sure that you're double checking what you're putting in the tank because that can really change some of the things that, I mean, you mentioned going to court, that could really change some of the volatility, some of the off-target movement, all those things. And we want to make sure that we're on label and more importantly, stewarding the trade that allow us to have the advantage against some of these weeds. Well, and in particular this year, the dates of those registered applications for those herbicides were changing by state, and the state regulators even are changing those from year to year. So I think this is, you know, the living label, you really have to uh, reflect back season by season what's going on. Yes, absolutely. My turn. Huh. Palmer amaranth is a weed that farmers in 
northern states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan do not need to worry about. True or false? You know, that's false. That's false. I've gotten more pictures texted to me from friends, agronomists saying, is this Palmer? Is this Palmer? And, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to judge the length of that petiole on the leaf. Mm -hmm. And you're going, geez, that's a really long petiole. Wait, did that come from Western Minnesota? And I think that's one of the, the places that, you know, certainly in all the years of agronomy, it's always bet on the pest. And in this case, the pest is Palmer amaranth. So it's moved north for a various number of reasons. You know, what are the number of reasons that you've gotten down? So we got a handful of counties, at least in Minnesota, that have been identified to have it. And one of the reasons was uh, pollinator seed, right? So seed is probably a big one, especially, you know, some of the smaller grain seed or some of the specialty seed that come from different parts of the world in the southern places. Some of it, I mean... We got dairy farms that feed cotton seed, right? So it's probably another way that we could we spread the manure and out goes the seed with that. So there's some different avenues, birds. I mean, all those sorts of things can travel that seed north. Yeah. Yeah. There's some good things that have come from the south. Barbecue, Nashville hot, prom or amaranth is not one of the good things. No. So, so yeah. Do we have a fear for it? Yeah. If you got it, it's super aggressive and, and it still grows. Minnesota, believe it or not, does get humid and extreme growing conditions for this Palmer amaranth. So no major outbreaks, so to say now, but it's something we should definitely manage and be fearful of if it gets out of control. Yeah, and even inside of there, within nine days of flowering on a water hemp plant, over 50% of the seeds are viable. I don't know the specifics on the on the Palmer amaranth plant. It's a similar family, mm-hmm. but it's one of those cases where if you see the plant, simply picking it up and laying it back down in the row is Basically, you're just row seeding it for next year. You actually need to remove the plant from the field. And I think that's one of the things that the South has done year in and year out is they basically carried the weeds to the edge of the field and then uh, waited for them to dry down and burned them after the season. Yep. So it's total removal of that weed prior to seed production or flowering. Yeah. Oh, that's intense. Yeah. It's uh, you can't just mow that one down, Joel. Have you seen that big uh, Australian seed crusher that you put on the back of your combine as an attachment? Yeah. So they're integrating them in some combines now. Ah, oh, man. I bet you that thing sucks some diesel fuel. Yeah. And just think the horsepower requirements that are needed for that. But yeah, very interesting the way that they integrate them in. All right. Harrington Seed Destructor is, I think, the name of that. That's malicious. Yeah. I bet you as a weed scientist, you feel good about those things. Oh, yeah. Just the eradication of <laughs> weed species is just, it feels good. Yeah. It feels good to smash weeds. All right. John, uh, it doesn't matter how many gallons per acre of herbicide you apply as long as you're using an effective mode of action for the weeds you're trying to control. It doesn't matter how many gallons yeah. per acre yeah, I think of herbicide. So we're talking, we're, it's a rate conversation again. I think the listener who wrote this question got gallons of herbicide and gallons of water mixed up. So I'm going to inflect that. Uh, this question is true or false. It doesn't matter how many gallons of water or carrier you're using when you're spraying herbicides, as long as you're using the right mode of action. False. It does matter how many gallons per acre. And the gallons per acre should be dependent upon mode of action. You already brought up contact versus systemic, so I think that groundwork has been laid. But because of contact herbicide, we have to hit every growing point. It's important to make sure that our gallons per acre are 
relatively high. So an example of a contact herbicide would be glufosinate, Liberty. And I want to make sure that we got 20 plus gallons an acre with that product to get as much coverage as we possibly can so we can hit every growing point and make sure that that plant doesn't come back. You know, it's interesting, John, as I'm reading this question to you, I can't help but think, but these are all mental models or decision trees that are in your head. And the fact that they're decision trees means that you could actually add computer logic and I could actually replace you with a computer at this point. Is that true or false? Random tree, is that what you're referring to? Some <laughs> AI, Joel? Maybe. Artificial intelligence? Oh, I'm sure the Google machine would give you some of these answers. Are you going to type that question in and let her fly or what? You know, I don't know. I haven't done that demo in a while. Let me see if it's on here. So while you look for that, I think gallons per acre is a pretty extreme conversation just because most of the time it's it's hauling water from field to field, right? And But when you think about the coverage that you need, and I always talk in, in terms of a contact herbicide, most of the time you're trying to kill the chlorophyll of that weed so it can't photosynthesize and making sure that it doesn't have any chlorophyll left, especially in the term of using a PPO inhibitor, so a group 14 herbicide, you want to make sure that you get as best coverage as you can so it goes and penetrates down through those basal mesophyll cells and kills all the chlorophyll production. Because if any part of that weed is green afterwards, it has the ability to photosynthesize and throw another growing point. So just another reason why gallons per acre is very important. The other thing with gallons per acre is it's about how you spray it. So you might have 20 gallons per acre, but if you're spraying super ultra coarse droplets, you still don't get the coverage that you would have by taking a more medium or coarse droplet size, like 350 microns or so, Lillian would be proud, and making sure that you get the best coverage out of that's 20 gallons per acre. So gallons per acre definitely does matter. Got it. You know, and, and along with that gallons per acre, I, I typically find that lower gallons per acre is associated with water scarcity, which means growers that have to travel further to get the water are less likely want to apply more gallons per acre because they're trying to be efficient. And in some cases, they actually wind up trying to suck water out of a local ditch or a pond. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the biggest challenges because we always talk about water quality and adjuvants going hand in hand. Well, if you're sucking water from a pond and that pond has some sediment or is a little bit murky in water, you're picking up cations, positive charges, calcium, magnesium, and those are, you know, those will bind or deactivate molecules of specific herbicides like glyphosate. Mm -hmm. So I always find that water and gallons usage, if you're asking the question, it's because you want to use less. And if you want to use less, you have less access to water, which makes me question your source of water. And that's one of the places that you can really deactivate a lot of herbicide in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. My turn. The ideal temperature for applying most post-emergent herbicide is between 40 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Most post-emergent herbicide. Huh. 40 and 60 degrees. 40 and 60 degrees is pretty cold. That's, I say that's chilly. You know, and the key point of herbicides is the plant oftentimes has to metabolize it. So you want your plants to be actively growing. Absolutely. In order for, so I'd say that's a little on the cold uh, or false if you're giving me a, a binary option. So I'd say it's false. You, you want those herbicides to come into a plant that's actively growing. And you go, wow, well, you know, hey, it's 60 degrees outside. 
I think what you have to do is you have to classify the fields and how bad it is and if you've had resistance issues in the past. If you really need the herbicide to work well, I always say the best time of day to spray is typically in that 10 to noon time frame where it's not too cold, not too dewy, not too hot, where the plants are actively growing and the leaf surface is dry. And, you know, just working through that doesn't mean that you can only spray between 10 and noon. It just means that you should be in your toughest fields during that time of day. You know, certainly, uh, you know, in the fall, we've done some burn down applications mm-hmm. of alfalfa using some uh, some sterling blue and pieces dicamba. like that, some dicamba that uh, that you do on some on some cooler days. And the herbicide has a chance to be effective, but it's better if the plant is actively growing. So you talked about time of day. The question was temperature, 40 to 60. We both agree that's false. What's, what would be the ideal temperature then? Well, you know, the growing degree calculation tops out at 85 degrees that mm-hmm. plants don't really gather any more efficiency or energy that basically they're at, you know, the top end of the tachometer at 85 yep. degrees and that they, you know, basically slow down pretty immensely at 50 degrees. Yep. So 50 to 85. 50 to 85. Yep, I would agree. So 60 would be your low end. Yeah. All right. Ooh, this, this tailors nicely. And uh, in most cases, fall burndown isn't needed because the cold winter weather will kill most winter annual weeds that emerge in the fall. False. Sounds like a good Minnesotans question. Yeah, so false. Uh, you know, eh, we... You know, we don't, that's funny, a good Minnesotans question. So I, I would say that we probably don't do as much fall burndown. And it's for the reason of we have a thing that's a nice pretty color and it's really hard and it's it's tillage, right? Yeah. I mean, so it's ironweed control. And so we control a lot of those weeds with tillage and therefore we don't have many of those weeds ever really forming in our fields. But where those situations where we are doing minimal till or we aren't doing any fall tillage or just doing spring tillage, it's definitely important to, to have a fall burn down. And not only does it help take out some of those winter annuals, but it also helps provide a little blanket of residual in the spring if we are under some pressure to get out there early and that sort of thing. So we definitely want to make sure that we have a fall burn down in place if we aren't doing those tillage practices. Yeah, I, I remember uh, when I started out as an agronomist, I had a producer that... Uh, inadvertently switched over to no-till soybeans. And what I mean by that is he basically didn't get his fall tillage Mm -hmm. done coming out of corn, and he had a bad dandelion problem. And then I went out there with 24, you know, 32, 36, and and 46 ounces of glyphosate trying to attack dandelions that were really, really heavy. It was a disaster. I mean, Never. you know, it, it, those winter annuals store energy late in the fall, and then in the spring, there's so much nutrient and energy flow coming up above ground. You know, good luck getting a systemic herbicide to really do anything. Systemic really isn't going to have the opportunity to go down or systemic to that growing point that's down below the ground because there'll be so much influx of nutrients and, and water pushing up. Yeah, you're swimming swimming upstream. Yep. One thing I might add, though, is... With a fall burndown, since we just got done discussing a question on temperature, is I think because of that reason, and we have so so much variable weather conditions in the fall, the use of an adjuvant package is that much more beneficial. So if you are looking for a fall burndown, it's not about just doing a, the cheapest product and making sure that you're, you're getting out there and putting it. You might not have the performance that you expect to have out of that product if you don't have the adjuvant package to get it through that cuticle and down to that growing point where you need 
need to get just because the plant isn't actively growing. It's not taking in everything that it should be as quickly. Yeah, John, I know you work a lot with no-till, minimum-till farmers uh, on that, and, and they are aware that some fall pre-emerge herbicides are some best management practices. When you're spraying corn stocks, when you're spraying corn residue, have you seen some differences in using adjuvant package or, you know, how do you affect the success of the weed control in the spring by adjuvants or gallons per acre in the fall when there's so much residue out there? Yeah, so uh, the residue is a really hard component to battle. A lot of the times, you know, you you maybe wouldn't spray necessarily those those corn. You'd spray going into corn. So bean ground is way easier way to kill some of those winter animals. Um, but if you need to, there's definitely some adjuvants that you can put into place to try to stop that beating up or that absorption into the residue so you get better penetration. And then you increase your gallons per acre. Okay, so that would be a way to get around it. But because the trash or the residue really restricts the application to the target, it's definitely a lot harder to get some control there with the residue. So do you use like an organosilicone or like what, have you gone that far or are you still back in the MSOs and and deposition agents? So yeah, so you could definitely use an organosilicone, which basically breaks all the surface tension in that droplet and it's not going to beat up or necessarily stick to that residue. It'll penetrate down through and, and probably with a rainfall, it'll probably become more active in the soil as well. So there's some theories behind that, but even even as simple as a non-ionic surfactant and breaking the surface tension would be would be enough. But yeah, I would probably be I'd lean more on the aggressive side with our cooler weather. Is you need an MSO to get cuticle penetration awesome. more than anything. Yep. So best case, Joel and organosilicone partnered with an MSO. Oh, okay, burn through the waxy cuticle and reduce surface tension. Yep. Again, this is another decision tree. You're going to get replaced by AI if you keep putting I gotta out here. I got to quit talking because the computer just records everything I say, and then pretty soon it starts making up words. <laughs> we actually do, uh, in one of our computer systems, we actually do record this as voice to text, and then that makes these transcripts searchable, queryable. So how many words do I have to say before it knows my whole vocabulary? Uh, most of the research would say that you need about 20 minutes on tape before I can, before I can use AI to recreate your voice and make you say things that you've never said before. Okay, we got two minutes to finish this episode here, else I'm going to be caught. All right, here we go. When weeds are under stress, herbicide efficiency drops. True, yes. So herbicide efficacy when weeds are under stress, meaning... My thought process there is what stress did you are, does that mean you already sprayed the weeds and now you want to come <laughs> back like three days later because you're not sure if they're going to die? Or no. does that mean cold stress, drought stress, you know, high moisture stress, whatever that means? But efficacy is definitely, remember, we've already said this before, spray the weeds when they are actively growing and then you're going to get the best kill. That's yeah. going to be the best for efficacy. There's nothing worse than a wounded weed. I mean, you start to deal on terms of percentages and mm. You never reach 100% of any weed control, but when you've got a, a wounded weed because of a respray, your odds of cleaning that thing up just get worse and worse. But I do think, you know, one of the technologies that's kind of coming along here, we talked a little bit about herbicide rates and ways that we can reduce that. And certainly it's not just cut the rate, but, you know, there's auto boom shutoff. Mm -hmm. There's pulse width modulation with turn compensation. There's some sea and spray technology that's coming out. Certainly uh, John Deere's investment in Blue River, that they're actually actively uh, working in some cotton fields right now. But, you know, I think that all of these pieces are going to 
to continue to evolve how we spray herbicides. One of the things that we were able to take a look at, and I'm not sure if you checked this out in the answer plots this year, there's one plot where we looked at uh, actually a drone being able to spray a pesticide from the drone. I didn't think we were supposed to talk about that, Joel. <laughs> is, is that like uh, Fight Club? That just might be the computer making up words that we said, right? Now. Right. That's like fake news. Yeah, got it. Okay, last one. We're down to it. Early weeds can consume a costly amount of nitrogen, and I'm going to add slash fertility from the soil. True or false? Yeah, that's absolutely true. We talk about a good a good number is uh, one inch blade of grass can sequester 40 pounds of nitrogen. That's such a terrific Holy term. Smokes. Yeah, sequester 40 pounds of nitrogen. 40 pounds of nitrogen, 50 cents per pound, 20 bucks. So if you can see grass, and you know it, it's not always clear the density. Like one blade isn't mm-hmm. nearly as bad as a thousand blades per square foot if it looks like a lawn out there. But it really is going to pull up, you know, twenty bucks worth of nitrogen in there. Now that's just the cost of losing the nutrient that you've applied. But I think the bigger deal, and and you know maybe you can, how would you rank this in your decision tree? Is it worse to lose the nutrients? from the weed competition, the water from the weed competition, or the hormonal change of the the near-infrared light reflected back into the plants that you want, the good plants? Well, we might want more weeds to just suck up some of the extra water, and then that would maybe benefit. <laughs> I don't know. You Is that, that a good make, answer? That wouldn't make a difference. Oh, no. Uh, so out of those three, if I had to pick them, it would actually be... Initially, the first one that would be the most important would be the infrared, the light. The plant sensing ability to sense a weed, a competitor growing next to it, in a bad way, stresses it out and maybe puts a non-compete there. Yeah, and it all comes at the expense of trying to put on more above-ground mass to out-compete with putting on less below-ground mass for root interception later on. So it's abnormal physiology that's dictated by that infrared sensing or that sensing ability that that plant has. Which, John, I know this is going to sound strange to you, but from a crop modeling perspective, that makes things in the crop model very difficult to track. If there's abnormal crop physiology because there's early season weed pressure and it's caused that hormonal imbalance in the plants to outcompete above ground at the sacrifice of below ground, kind of messes with our model. So you're telling me that maybe vigor index might go up, but it's just because you have a weed problem. Right. Yeah. So here, Joel, I thought I was going to be able to turn this into a fertility answer, being that weeds were taking up a lot of our nutrients, but somehow we got back into the conversation of crop models and and it was because the answer that I gave you with that sensing. That's it's right. Good work, man. That's right. You know, it good all work. it all leads these soil scientists like to say it all starts with the soil. As a technologist, I like to say it all comes back to technology. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Deal with Yield podcast, and if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us online or on your podcast app. And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com. 